from the saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specializing in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure. I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> from the saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, and this is From the Saddle. When you hear the word Brumby, what do you think? Feral pests that need to be culled? Well, my guest today reckons they're beautiful animals that with the right handling and training can be perfect for drafting and even a kid's horse. She promises to turn a feral horse into a working animal in five days. I was so intrigued by Anna's Brumby project. I had to know how she does it and why. From the saddle. From the saddle. Anna, thanks for joining me. You grew up in Germany. What was it like there? Were you around horses? Yeah, so um, my whole family's German and, yeah, I was born there and grew up there and um, there was, there's no horses in my life. It's, it's a lot different having horses in Germany. Um, our backyard was, you know, tiny and but somehow I always had a um, an idea that I was going to have a horse. No, none of my family's horsey or anything and I just said, you know, I'm going to have a horse one day and... Um, when my family decided to move to Australia, um, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll get a horse when we come to Australia. And but I, um, I saved up a lot. I you know, picked up other, you know, horse poo and sold that and saved for a horse that way. And yeah, eventually got my first pony a few years, a few years later. So. so, Anna, how old were you when your family came to Australia? Um, I was only... Four, I think four or five. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember much about that? Was it a big adjustment? Yeah, it was. I um, I didn't speak any English at all, and my dad spoke English pretty well, but I was, yeah, I didn't know anything, and I, I just refused to to go to school or anything like that. I, I said no thanks to that. I'll just stay home, and so yeah, it was, it was a big adjustment. You know, looking back, you don't remember that much, but um. Yeah, I think it was, you know, a totally different lifestyle and, and totally different environment. So it did take a while to adapt to that, but, yeah, it wouldn't change for the world. So what brought you guys over here? Um, it was my mum. She, she was just sick of, you know, the cold and the, the, the climate. And, I mean, neither of them had um, been to Australia much. They'd visited once or twice, um, but... Yeah, it was just a change in lifestyle and, you know, wanting wanting to be outdoors more and the beach and so they just decided that Australia was the place to go. So yeah, they came okay. to the um, Sunshine Coast. Yeah, so came to Australia, sat it on the Sunshine Coast. Is that where you guys have been ever since? Yeah, but pretty much. Um, I've moved around a bit, you know, once I left school and um, travelled a bit, but um, pretty much based on the coast since then. Were you an only child when you came over or did you have siblings? No, I have an older brother. Yeah, he's eight years older than me, so he he did you know, English at school and everything, so he, he was able to transition into to life here. Um, yeah. Anna, did you find it hard to make friends? When you like you couldn't speak English, so obviously the communication wasn't great. Was did you find it took a while to sort of build some friendships and and it started to feel like home? 
I think so, yeah. I mean, memories are vague, but I had a um, this little Italian boy that I went to preschool with and he couldn't speak much English either. And I think somehow we thought, well, neither of us could speak English, so maybe our, even though Italian and German, you know, we obviously couldn't understand each other, but I think we had somewhat of a um, shared experience. So that sort of made it easier. And then... Apparently, mum says, once I did start speaking, I spoke perfect English. So I think I'm a, I was a bit of a perfectionist and didn't want to say much before I knew exactly what was going on. So, um, But I was lucky to have, you know, really supportive people and a really supportive school. And, um, yeah, that, that's sort of my memories of that. Yeah. So... You mentioned that you always felt like you were going to own a horse or or be around horses as a, as a child. I guess so many little girls, you know, imagine having a pony and you know all the magical things that come with owning a pony in their little lives. Um, yeah. Did, did your <laughs> did your parents think that you would outgrow that? Did they sort of think, oh, this is a phase, and Anna will sort of move on to something else eventually? I think so. Um, unfortunately for them, poor mum, you know, she had no idea about horses or anything. And I just have some funny memories of my first pony and her getting sort of chased across the paddock. And it was, it was, yeah, it was definitely a learning experience. But I think they they caught on, you know, after a while. I wouldn't let up, and you know, you sleep with your with your helmet on and your jotties, and you know, you make. <laughs> saddles and and you you know you ride those little saw horses and stuff and I think they just realized look she's never going to shut up so we may as well just you know buy a property and and sort of yeah they made it all you know pretty pretty amazing to have I I mean I had a pretty the first pony I bought Sinbad I, I saved up for you know years and finally bought this horse and he was you know he had Queensland bitch and he was naughty and he was um he was he was fun. Like, he was a great first pony. He wasn't one of those, you know, manicured, perfect, elite little things that would yeah. do whatever you asked. He, um, yeah. you know, shied at wheelie bins and everything. So he, he definitely put your head at right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So a big adjustment going from a no-horse family to a horse family. Um, did you say that your parents bought a property to give you this opportunity to own a horse and explore your passion? Um, I think it partly for the reason because I was adjusting, you know, and the years went on and I just seemed to get more and more into it. Um, so I think it was partly to have land for horses and, and they also, you know, they loved, you know, having the space and growing veggies and so I think it was a it had lots of benefits, having a little bit of land, nothing, you know, nothing crazy but 20 acres or so just to spread out. Yeah. So, Anna, how old were you when you first, you know, when you got your first horse? I think I was seven. I I had a little lease pony that I used to ride and, you know, got lessons and then, yeah, I think I was seven when, I, when we bought Sinbad and, yeah, I had him for about, I think, nearly 15 years by the end of it all, but, and then, you know, I would say I grew him, but, um, yeah, he was my first pony. Yeah, okay. So let's fast forward. You now break in Brumbies. Yeah. Brumbies are distinctly Australian. So when did you first become interested in them? Yeah, so that's, um, 
that's sort of skipping forward to when I, I think I was late high school. I, um, I think like many Australians, I didn't even know we had that many feral horses in Australia and, and camels and everything. And I sort of, I'm not sure how I first sort of got onto the topic, but I, um, I went to a, a cult starting weekend and I, um, watched this guy, um, break in a Brumby from scratch and, you know, an unhandled horse. And I was like, wow, like, that's really cool. Um, I got a, you know, chat to him. So I, I walked up to him afterwards and I, um, sort of introduced myself and he turned out to be one of my best mentors over the years. So that was Brian Hampson. Um, and he sort of said, oh, you know, if you're interested, why don't you come along to a Brumby, um, breaking in school that I run. And, um, so I did the year after and, yeah, just I got my first Brumby and sort of broke that in. That was sort of the first horse I'd ever really broken in myself and, yeah, learned a lot from that and got some help and then went on the, the Brumby school the following year, which was out at a sort of western Queensland and station out there and that was different to anything I'd ever done before and that's sort of when I became hooked and I haven't really stopped since then. Okay, so let's let's just go back to breaking that first horse in. You said you learn a lot from it. Obviously, to the untrained eye, it looks easy, and then you, yeah. you walk in, <laughs> you walk in, and you're in the presence of that unbroken horse. Can you remember what you sort of thought through the process, or what you felt when you were first in there? Uh, yeah, I think it was just you know, holy shit, what do I, how do you get from this to anything that you can ever ride? You know, it was that whole bracket of learning for the horse and, and for myself was just, I'd never done it before because all the horses I'd ever interacted with were, you know, they were broken in or they were, you know, at least leading and tying up and you could pat them. But it was really foreign to me a horse that wanted nothing, absolutely nothing to do with you and was terrified, you know. So that was sort of, I think, what I was thinking. And it, it, it is a bit intimidating, you know, a big snotty stallion that just wants to get rid of you. What do you, how do you approach that? <laughs> yeah. So, Anna, did you have a light bulb moment during that time that, you know, you, you sort of thought, well, oh, hang on, what if I try this or do that or do I, you know, follow the instructions of, you know, the people that I've watched and the mentors? Did you have a light bulb moment that you then and now use to this day in your method? I think I had, yeah, a continuous, you know, light bulb moments. It's the first time doing it, and I, I say this to all the participants now, you know, the first time you, you break in a Brumby, you or any horse, really, because lots of our participants have never broken in a horse. You, you're a bit overwhelmed. You know, there's so much going on, and the person um, teaching you is, is, you know, telling you tiny things, how to move your body and what position to be in. So the first time can be very a bit of a blur. But then once you've done that and you've, you know, learnt from that horse, you the second time you do it around, you do have a lot of light bulb moments where you go, oh, okay, I know where I need to be, or... Oh, mm. that that worked with this horse, but, you know, my the, the first horse I broke in, he didn't respond at all to that. So for me personally, it was quite a lot the first time. Um, and 
there's a few times, especially when the horse sort of starts trusting you a bit more and you do get close enough for the first touch, you know, that's, that's pretty special and you go, okay, I, I am doing something right, you know. Yeah, and I guess the first time it's more about where you are and making sure you don't get struck down the head and then watching and understanding the horse's way of movement and thinking. So that would be sort of more so like the second horse that you break in. You're more confident in your position in that um, horse yard Yeah, to be able to read the horse more than be worried about where you are. Exactly right. And, you know, like the first few days are, are all about your body position and your timing and, you know, your, your instructor's sort of telling you all the time, you know, get behind or get, you know, get in position. And, and you're hearing that all the time and then, you, you know, the instructor's sort of, you know, moving your hand for you just with with words, you know, saying, you know, lift lift that arm now and then, you know, the horse will stop and you go, okay, I, I just did that. And then you learn all that sort of comes a bit more naturally next time around or, you know, some a lot of people are very different and some people just take to it. You know, you tell them once and they sort of, you know, they work out that flow and then others need a bit more, you know, direct coaching. So it's, yeah, it all, it all depends on the person, but everyone has pretty unique experiences and we find somehow, I don't know, but every year it's like the, the horse and the human pair somehow a perfect, you know, in terms of what the person really needs to work on or something they're not very confident with and the, the matchings are always, I'm not sure how it works, mm. but they somehow pick each other and it just works really well. So. The psychology in horse training is huge. There's more to it than meets the eye. It's not so much about horse movements and indications. It's more about the psychology behind it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, like the horse is a prey animal. Like it, it doesn't want to be your mate first up. You know, it's, it's not there to, to be your friend. It's just trying to, to figure you out and mm. where you sit in the, in the sort of herd. And, you know, we, we see that a lot. Like I've seen, you know, hundreds of feral horses now and, and their behaviours and, you can, to an extent, you can match that up with their age and their sex. You can say, oh, you know, like a an eight-year-old stallion is going to be a lot more aggressive and, you know, has a way bigger bubble than a, you know, a two-year-old colt who's, you know, in his natural environment, not in his natural environment, but when he's out with his mob or with, his, with the other bachelors, he'll, he's just trying to sort of stay low and trying to, you know, not get kicked too much and trying to have his mates. And then when he gets old enough, he'll be a bit more assertive. And um, yeah. so you really try and read that as well um, when you're matching people with their brumbies. And- so I guess you're taking them, you know, from the environment that they know to a new environment and you're new and we are predators, you know, our eyes are in the front of our head and to them we are predators. So they're defensive right from word go and it's a shock to the system. We've changed what they know and, you know, see every day to we're asking them to do things on our command. It's a big adjustment for them. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's just a totally different world, you know. These horses have never depending where they're from, they've never seen a person before or, you know, they've never been contained. They, they don't know what a rail is. Some some of them, you know, learn that the hard way and they really, you know, can hurt themselves if you're not careful. And then, you know, they get popped on a truck and then here they are in a, in a round yard with some 
person waving a stick at them from the middle of the round yard and they have to figure out pretty quickly where they can get a release from pressure, what doesn't work. And, yeah, that, it's pretty cool to watch, you know, like to, to have that sort of language and communicate that, and, you know, try and make it all really safe for everyone and, you know, create somewhat of a, a partnership. And then by the end of, you know, 10 days, you're, you're riding this horse outside and, you know, it's your mate and it's just, it's pretty cool to, to sort of witness from where to go. So you mentioned, you know, you ended up in Outback Australia, like Western Queensland. What led you to that? And can you tell me about the project? Yeah. So um, as I said, my first time out there was when I was a participant. So when I was breaking in my first rugby. Um, so I had um, heaps of like cool mentors out there who were just really great in sharing knowledge and, you know, giving someone who'd never, you know, worked on a station before or, or you know, spent much time giving them that experience and really, um, you know, seeing the land and, you know, seeing Brumbies and, you know, what happens to the habitat and, and how they're managed out there. So that was, that was eye-opening. And then, I, you know, I went back the following years and, and did the camp again and then I eventually... Um, became an instructor and, and ran the camps with Brian. So that was all in on a station out west. And then since then, we've gone to Central Australia um, to do a few different programs there. So we work with Bush Mob. Um, it's an Aboriginal corporation um, and they have sort of troubled, troubled teens and youth and we get them in a yard with a Brumby and run that. And then, um, yeah, this year and last, we're doing the camp here in, on the coast just because of a few reasons, but they had a pretty pretty dry out there the last few years. So, yeah, we're just sort of adapting and working with that. So, yeah. So, Anna, something that you saw in Central Australia troubled you a lot? Yeah, look, you know, you have uh, travelling around a bit and sort of seeing the raw, um, you know, ecology and the so all the, the different aspects of of animals and life and, you know, big big properties. You, you see a few things that, you, you know, make you realise, hey, this is, this is all part of it. But usually, you know, you're shielded from that. And I guess just seeing, you know, desert brumbies come, come into water in a really bad drought and, you know, all there is left is like a puddle with, you know, decaying cattle and camels and horses. And it's just, yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking to see you know, these two Brumbies, you know, totally malnourished and they're just, you know, probably just walked about 30 k's just to get to this disgusting waterhole and then the next morning, you know, they're, they're dead as well. So it's it's pretty, I think it's it's good to, to see, you know, to fully understand the bigger picture and be informed and, you know, know what, why you're doing this sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, it, it is confronting to see that and... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure people see it all the time on their properties and that's just the way of life. But. It is the way of life. Um, but let's clarify why they were malnourished and, you know, the fact that it's mother nature, if that makes sense. It, it's not, you know, some listeners may listen to this and say, well, why couldn't you feed it? Why couldn't you water it? And let's face it, there is so many people out there unaware of the reality and the harsh conditions of the bush at times. 
Absolutely, and that's that's one of the real drivers of why I continue to do these camps. You know, like you may think, oh, you know, you're only you know teaching fifteen old people how to break in a Brumby each year, but I love to teach people the whole picture. You know, like I work as an ecologist as well, and I'm passionate about the bush and the landscape, and you know, having healthy ecosystems and a lot of the people that come to, to Brumby Week or to the Brumby camps, they, you know, they're true advocates and they love Brumbies and they never want to see one hurt. Um, but the reality is that they're not natural to Australia. We don't, Australia never had any hooved mammals. So they do have an impact on landscapes and we need to manage that, you know, and it's not all roses. People say, oh, well, why don't you feed them? And it's like, well, how are we going to feed, you know, 10,000-odd Brumbies and, and why, you know, what then they out-compete the native animals and or, you know, the next season if we're not there to chuck a few round bars out, then then what, you know? Like it's it's really important to step back and see the bigger picture and, and think, you know, how can, we, how can we help and how can we make things better? But, yeah, it's, it, there's definitely a lot to think about and, and that changes, you know, I have... I haven't had much experience down in the in the Alps or anything um, with those brumbies, but the management is different across the board. You know, it's not a you know you can't apply one management strategy all over Australia. No, absolutely not. And there's not enough, you know, financial aid for it. There's not. It's just impossible to help them all and save them all. And like I said, it's Mother Nature, and sometimes it's harsh and out of our control. Um, and a, a lot of our listeners on the land and have to deal with the realities of pest reduction. As an ecologist, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I get asked that all the time. Um, and I guess I'm in a, in a unique position in that, you know, I love horses and I obviously I think they're beautiful and, you know, I keep horses. But I don't necessarily believe that they all... You know, we can't sustain the, the Brumby populations that Australia has, um, and there's been a lot of research that's been done um, to show that. And we do need to manage numbers, you know, just like we manage any other feral pest. And, and just because Brumbies are, you know, they're really, you know, gorgeous and they everyone loves them. They're not a, you know, a, a cane toad that people go, oh yeah, you know, I, I don't really care what happens to them, but yeah. Um, obviously it all needs to happen in a, in a humane way and I think, you know, people that do live on a bit of land and, you know, are, are aware of the processes, not, not, no one wants to see any animal suffer. Um, mm. So that's why, you know, it's so important to really know about what management techniques work on in certain areas and follow the science. Yeah, absolutely. So, Anna, why Brumbies? What is it about Brumbies and, and not you know, the horses that people are breeding by the dozen. Why Brumbies? Um, I love Brumbies. Just, they're just so versatile, you know. I've, I've seen a lot of Brumbies from different areas, parts of Australia and from different mobs and there's not really one type. I mean, it depends on, you know, the, the family group they're running in and you can see all, all different you know, types and sizes and temperaments. But I, I just love them for their versatility. Um, and, you know, the average person who just wants a companion horse or wants to trail ride or wants to go the odd show or, you know, even jumping and, and stuff like that. Like, they're just, they're so adaptable. My main mare, she, 
I mean, I get asked all the time, you know, what's her breeding? And it's like, well, I'm not sure because she's <laughs> from the bush, but she, um, you know, she, I can't draft on her now and, and she's great. Obviously, you know, you're not selectively breeding for, you know, type or cowiness or anything. So, yeah. Um, I do love a good stock horse. I also have a stock horse. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, we've got an untapped resource. And so the average person that just, you know, wants to make something special uh, of a horse or have a kid's pony, they're just so tough and just lovely to be around. And, and once you sort of, you know, once you gain their trust and you're over that initial phase where, you know, during the camp where they're very scared, they just turn into really great pets. Do you think it's like also because they're rescued and you have worked with them and turned them into this, I guess, athlete, if that makes sense, um, or whatever they may be, whether it's just a companion horse or a competition horse. I think the fact that you didn't walk into a sale ring and buy a well-bred horse that has already been trained and you can jump on and you do whatever you need to do. You've trained this horse and these brumbies and that's got to add some sort of level of relationship to it. Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. You know, like my mare, she's, I, I trust it with my life. You know, she, she does anything and I use her now to break in the other brumbies that come through and they're just... You see them, you know, I've sold them as kids' ponies and they're just so gentle and just really their senses are, I find, a lot more heightened, if that makes sense. Like they're just a a little more switched on when it comes to to basic things, you know, like my stock horse is in the paddock and snoozing and and my rummy mare, she's sort of looking, you know, in the distance and 10 minutes later a truck comes by or something. Something like that, you know, they're very... Survivor um, skills are heightened. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, she'd never, you know, take off or anything. It's it's just a different sort of energy and, and that's especially apparent, you know, like when you first start working with them and they realise, hey, this, you know, person sort of just gives me, you know, unlimited loosen and, and you see them going to the water trough every five minutes because they, they don't know that they've never had water on tap and it's like it's just a whole new life and then they get home and, They've got a paddock and they don't have to go, you know, trekking for, for caves for food and to have mates and it's, it's all pretty sweet after that. And, yeah, they really just, you know, become like lots of people sort of have them then as a main horse and they're just like they've never had a horse quite like that. So that's pretty cool. When you first bring a Brumby in, do you find they take a bit to take to the loosen or to take to the water trough? Have you ever had one that hasn't eaten because it's foreign or hasn't drank out of the trough because it's foreign? Yeah, absolutely. They're firstly mostly petrified of the water trough. I think that's pretty terrifying. And again, they're all different. You know, some Brumbies, they just walk straight up to it and they go, you beauty, but most are really like, oh, I don't know about that. And, and loosen, no, nah, we don't want that. We want, you know, the shittest grassy hay you've got. <laughs> yeah. And you start them off on that. And then, you know, by day five, you know, some of them are nickering at you in the morning and they want their loosen. And it's like, you know, because they're, they're, they're not a wild animal. They're, it's just equus cabalis, you know. They're, they're just a horse um, that's been in the wild for a while. And then once they realise, you know, hey, this is cool, like, I've got really yummy loosen on demand, you know, they're neighing at you and it's, 
um, yeah, they definitely don't take long to adjust to domestic life. I think it's pretty cool. So, Anna, tell me about the Brumby Project. How did it come about and what's it all about? So, the the Brumby Project is um, a project that started off as just a a Brumby camp. So, Brian um, created these camps just to give people, um, you know, the opportunity to break in a horse because he was doing his PhD out on a big station and, and had you know, access to Brumbies, um, and it's now turned, it's still that, um, but um, it's a bit, bit bigger, and, you know, we're on social media, um, and we travel around a bit as well, um, so it's basically just a, an opportunity for, for anyone who's interested, um, it doesn't matter if you've never broken in a horse, to come out, um, and you get a Brumby, and you work with that horse for about 10 days, um, and we've got three round yards going at a time with three instructors, um, and it's just a full day of just breaking in your Brumby. So you work with the same horse um, and you, you own that horse at the end as well. Um, and you, yeah, you learn everything from, you know, getting, getting that horse stopped and getting that first touch and then eventually progressing on to, you know, your first ride and then riding out. So that, that's essentially what the Brumby project is. So after they break it in, what then? Um, then it's theirs. So um, at the end of the camp, you know, it, it's a bit of an incentive to, to do a good job and to to persist. Um, you you need to be able to, you know, tie your horse, load it on a float or a truck, um, get it home, have it used to, you know, being caught out in the big paddock. Um, and then, yeah, most people do take their horse home and, you know, turn it into whatever they want it to. Or, you know, if they're not in a position to take it home, then we rehome it. So we never, you know, struggle trying to find a home for these horses. So catching these Brumbies, how do you know which ones? Yeah, so it again, it's, it's different depending on where you are. So the, the Western Queensland Brumbies, they, they come in from national parks and um, they're passively trapped. So all Brumbies are passively trapped. None of them, you know, there's no roping or anything like that. They just come into water, usually on, on spear traps, so um, with cattle. Uh, if it's on a station, um, they just walk in the spear traps and those generally uh, gradually get, you know, closer and closer and then eventually when it comes to mustering their cattle, they, they just close the spear traps so that the stock can't get out and then, you know, they'll muster their cattle, they'll take them away and what's left we get. So any of the Brumbies there, we... um. We work with and, and we have a bit of a selection process, so we um, we know what we we want, you know what what works well with the camps, um, and then like this year we're working with the forestry locally. Um, we've got a, a colleague who who's in charge of the trapping program there, um, and he's got um, a really unique method of catching them. So he's a He's an ecologist and he's, he's great at what he does, but he works really hard to keep track of these horses. There's no infrastructure or anything out there. So he basically spends a few weeks in the bush um, making a giant paddock out of tape. Uh, and he just pokes around and he, you know, just gradually makes this, this enclosure smaller and smaller until finally they get run up into a big yard so he's got panels out and then yeah they're trapped like that if it goes to plan yeah it's pretty amazing how he does it so you you mentioned in that we pick which ones will suit yeah what are you looking for 
Um, so we like to work with anything sort of younger. So two, three-year-old colts are great. Um, we call them pushovers just because they're, they're malleable. You know, they're used to being told what to do. They go, yes, ma'am, instead of I'm going to kill you. Um, they're just very, um, yeah, malleable, I think is a good word to describe them. A lot of the older mares, they're generally quite heavily in foal or they have a foal at foot. Um, so they're a bit harder to take to the program. And the, the older stallions, they can be good too. But, yeah, some of them are it, – it all depends on the temperament of the, the mob. They're, they're all so different. So you just sort of run them through yards and you, you see how they react to the fences. And if there's a horse there that's, you know, running into the, the yard and he's going to really hurt himself, you, you don't take that one. But so out of a few horses, you know, we'd, we'd pick the ones that are sort of best suited for, for what we want to do. Yeah. So are there any that you think this animal's too far gone, it just can't be tamed? Yeah, we, we do. So um, most years, you know, I, I bring a couple of extra back just because some of them, uh, mainly the really old stallions, they're very set in their ways. And, you know, that none of them are untrainable. It's just for the time we've got and the, the level of experience that we've got. Um, with our participants, you don't you don't want to put anyone in danger. Um, so, you, yeah, you generally bush those horses and you just say, you know, we'll get to you later. But if anything, we, we get in and we test all the horses. So we'll, the instructors will go, the very first session we'll go in and we'll make sure, you know, there's nothing really dirty in there. Mm. But, you know, generally there's only maybe one of those per mob that you go, or, or none. You know, some years they're, they're just... They're just lovely, but you've got to be able to read and pick those horses out first. Yeah. So majority of our listeners wouldn't be foreign to the concept of training a horse or breaking in a horse, but there are some out there that are fascinated by the process. Step me through breaking in a brown bee. Is it like breaking in a non-feral horse? Um. In lots of ways it is, but there is a sort of an added component, I guess, that you you wouldn't have to go through with a, a horse, you know, that's that's from a broodmare from the back paddock because, you know, she's she's already taught that horse, you know, that people are okay and you come in for feed and a scratch. Um, so I guess that's the main difference is the first, let's say, four days, you're, you're convincing that horse to be able to get close enough to it to be able to put a halter on. So it's all about, you know, your, your body language and your timing in the round yard and, you know, establishing a stop and establishing a turn and facing up and, and all that stuff. If, if you know, if you get your breaker in, um, your, your domestic breaker, you'll generally you know, already know how to be approached um, and you can sort of start from there. And I guess another big difference with the Brumbies is that they're, they are hyper alert. So... You know, touching in a new spot, you know, the shoulder's generally pretty safe and, you know, that's where you, you'll start and you'll work your way up the neck and, um, you know, eyes, ears, mouth um, and work your way down the legs. But they're, they're very – they've never been touched. So, you know, doing all that desensitisation, you get far more of a reaction than the domestic horse. And, and I guess that, that continues on to the ridden stage as well. So – we encourage everyone to, you know, move around normally and climb up the rails and, you know, start cars and, you know, do all that over the, the course so that it's not a shock, you know, when if someone's having their first ride and someone 
starts a bike up or something and then the horse freaks out. You know, it's all all that stuff, I guess, is familiarisation with domestic life that needs to happen with the Brumbies that might not necessarily need to happen with domestic horses. But once you're past all that, it's pretty much the same. So, yeah, um, yeah once, you, once you're riding and you've got your leg aids and, you know, you stop and... I, I wouldn't say there's much of a difference after that. Do you find people have preconceived ideas of Brumbies? Um, I guess so, yeah. So a lot of people think they're tiny, um, which they are further down south. Um, but, you know, depending on the area you're in, so in the desert there's a lot of heavy breeds, for example, like you get some really chunky types. Um, and then at Western Queensland there's a lot of, you know, stock horse types, quarter horse types. Yeah. And other preconceptions, I think, that they're dangerous um, in terms of, you know, you, oh, you wouldn't get a, a, a Brumby for your kid, but some of the little Brumbies that I've sold on to kids, they're just, you know, they're safer than most of the kids' ponies out there. You know, they're just mm. so, you've broken them in right, you've taught them manners, they've been taught respect from their mob, and I, I mean, I'd, if I had a kid, I'd trust them you know like obviously not every single one but if you've done a good job breaking it in they're, they're great horses so I think yeah I think that's probably the main sort of preconceptions I think people have. So you mentioned earlier that you camp draft on your Brumby. Yeah yeah I do. How do you find people so when you're lining up at the camp next to the well-bred quarter horse cross stock horse you know whatever how do you find people respond to it when you ride up on your Brumby? Oh, most people don't know, obviously. Like, they just think, oh, it's just another quarter horse because um, she, she's got a brand and everything now. Do we, we sort of try and blend in a bit. But I used to be a bit, you know, embarrassed. Like, you know, oh, I've just got a, a bush horse. But, you know, you become a bit proud, you know. You think, oh, you know, I've, I've taken this horse from something that's never, you know, had a person near it and now you're, you know, you're chasing a cow flat gallop. And she's great. Like, she's, she's cowy. She's... She knows what to do and she knows her job and uh, I just think it's really cool. And, and most people, you know, if, you, if they ask and you tell them, you know, oh, she's just a brummy, they go, wow, really? Like, mm. they think you're pulling their leg, you know, at first. Yeah. Because I, I guess that's uh, that's a preconception is, oh, brumbies are, you know, no good, you know, for a challenge horse or something. But, you know, one in ten is. And if you're lucky enough to get it, you know, and, and train how you want it to and, I guess it's all about the training, you know. It's, there's a lot to do with breeding, but, you know, when it comes down to it, if you if you can get a good handle on it, then off you go. Yeah, well, breeding's not always the answer. I mean, you can have the best sire and the best mare, but it doesn't mean you'll get the best foal. Yeah, exactly right. You know, I love chatting to people about it and going, you know, it's, it's a brumby and they, yeah, generally it's shock. <laughs> they don't really believe you. I'd say it'd raise a few eyebrows and then it'd be like, hang on, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're at a school and, you know, the, the clinician, you know, have a chat with them and, and they go, you're joking, and then you know they tell people, and people come up to you after they go, "Is, is that really? Is that a problem? <laughs> yeah." And we have a good friend Anne, and she's done a few camps, and she's seventy plus. I'm not going to actually tell you age because we all say she's twenty six, but she's mm. she's you know she's getting on, and she rides this Brumby, and she just did her first Sucklands Challenge last weekend, and like her first one ever. She's never done one, and she rode a Brumby, and she you know she took out highest scoring senior rider, and 
you know, she made it. She made it look easy, and yeah, yeah it's testament to her, but also testament to the versatility, you know, of these horses. Absolutely. So, would you say the versatility is one of the benefits of a Brumby? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, they've got tough little feet, and they're varying sizes as well. You know, I've sold them to kids' ponies or to you know people that go to pony club or, or draft or. Um, very, 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 you, you know, you pick the type of the, the horse if you're breaking it in and, you know, if I get a little horse, I'll, I'll train it as a kid's pony or if I get something with a bit of go, you know, we've had horses go on to the Apex Spectacular, um, trail riding horses, jumpers, and yeah, so they're very, very versatile. And I, like I'm, I'm in and around the camp drafting circuit, I have a rural and equine-based business. So, you know, the whole equine industry is not a foreign concept to me. I find that when people are breeding horses, there's different categories. There's the people that want the golden bloodlines and then there's the people that want you know, the silver and then the bronze bloodlines. And then there's the people that just want the horse to do the job. Yeah. And they don't care how it's bred. They just want to own a horse to have fun with and to be a companion and compete on. Do you find that? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'd say that's probably most of our clientele. You know, we don't get too many top-notch drafters turn up wanting a, you know, their next, you know, can't Gold Cup, yeah. Yeah, maybe not, you know, but, <laughs> you know, the people that come in, they're after just a great horse, you know, a great all-rounder that, you know, they can trust and they can pop their kids on or they can go out and muster or, you know, they can go on a pack trip around Australia. You know, that that's what, you know, the Brumbies survived because it's tough and it's and it's smart and it, it knows general manners. It's, it hasn't got, you know, bad breeding, you know. It's, it's, there's a mob of horses and, you know, they're they don't know how to behave around other horses, they're not going to last very long. Or if there's a mob of horses that have really cracked feet and they need to walk 30 k's to get a drink, they're not going to last long. So that sort of a bit of natural selection has you know, produced something that I think really suits the Australian lifestyle and you know what, what we're after in just a general you know, day-to-day good, loyal horse. Do you know, I never actually thought about it until we had this conversation at how connected to nature Brumbies would be, Mm. like naturally connected to nature and their senses. And like, for example, you know, if the ants are climbing up the wall, there's rain coming. Yeah. So we all look to animals to see what's about to happen. And I'd never actually thought about that being, you know, one of the added benefits, I guess, to a Brumby rather than, you know, uh, just a, a general horse. Yeah. Which is still connected to nature, but not to the degree that a Brumby would be. Yeah, for sure. You know, like I, my mare, you know, you can ride her at the Ecker or something and there's a Ferris wheel and, you know, she's she's gotten used to all that. But if you're out in the bush and there's something, you know, not natural, so if there's a, a shed, like that's sort of hidden in the bushes, she'll, you know, she'll prick up and she'll go, well, what's that? You know, like yeah. she's onto that and she's all over it. Whereas some of the other horses I've had, they go, oh, well, I don't care, it's just a shed. You know, they yeah. just walk past that. But, yeah, they definitely are in tune and, and, you know, you can, yeah, sort of rely on them in the bush. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, Anna, what's your hope for the project? Um, my hope is just to keep educating people and giving them that experience. It's, it's such a unique 
experience to be able to to take a horse that's you know never been touched and you know make it your horse and you know learn a lot of stuff about ecology along the way and you know meet other people and just have a really great experience and I guess also a huge part of it is just doing doing my bit to to rehome some of these horses because I know how great they are and also it's helping out you know the land and you know some of them might have otherwise ended up being cold and but yeah it's it's just doing my part I guess like you said you can't save them all but you're doing what you can exactly right yeah Congratulations, Anna. It sounds interesting and I'm intrigued to see where you go from here. We will be watching closely and we wish you all the very best. No worries. Thank you so much, Caitlin. It's been it's been great. No worries, Anna. We'll talk soon. All righty. Cheers. Have a good week. Bye. Thank you to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, the founder and co-host of From the Saddle. I started this podcast a year and a half ago because I knew important stories from rural Australia weren't being told. We hear stories of triumph and tenacity, heartache and loss from rodeo riders, outback ringers, cattle traders, bronze sculptors and more. From the Saddle is an independent podcast. It's just us telling stories that matter to our community and we are so stoked that nearly 100,000 people have joined us for the ride. We're looking for partners this season to help tell these stories because we think they're worthy of being told. They're a part of our history and possibly our future. If you're interested, we'd love to hear from you.